Malcolm Holmline is vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays for the weekly update at JM and the AM. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you. It's a very important Friday morning, this uh, Erev Shabbos. Oh, that's for sure. That's for sure. Um, it's sort of bittersweet. I mean, obviously, I'm sure you know what I mean by that. Um, tell me about Israel, essentially. I know there are intermediaries, Qatar, USA, etc. But essentially, Israel is making a deal with the devil, with terrorists. Tell me about this process that got us till today. And do you think that, in fact, at 4 p.m. Israel time, which is just over an hour from now, there will be serious movement of hostages back to Israel? Israel. So there, there are a few very complicated and lengthy questions, uh, or at least lengthy answers necessary to talk about how we got to where we are. But everybody knows the events of October 7th and the ensuing uh, military efforts, as well as parallel efforts through Qatar, primarily uh, to reach to the uh, to the Hamas leadership, who were underground, remember, and largely incommunicado for the last uh, weeks, uh, because they know that their phones were used to track them. So they stopped using any kind of uh, means of electronic communication and communicated only by sending notes from their rat holes through emissaries that they would send out to, um, to, to deliver the messages and their responses. And that's one of the reasons it took long to uh, be able to work out the details, which I think as of now, are, some are still unresolved, including the right of the Red Cross to visit the remaining hostages, those not released today, and, and my understanding is that as of now, it's still not resolved. There was some talk that they would get medical reports on each of the of the hostages, but that you know is not very meaningful because uh, they can doctor those reports. There's no if there's no independent verification, and the uh, nobody knows the conditions and the the uh, the health condition, mental conditions. You have to remember the burden that will still remain with those who get out. They're going to be taken immediately to, some will be taken to the hospital immediately if they're in need of medical condition. If not, they're going to be taken to an Air Force base for a couple hours before being transferred to a hospital. Uh, all of them will be held under observation for uh, at least a little while. Some will require, I'm sure, more than that. And the the um, and remember, you have a lot of children, and a lot of children are going to come back and find out that uh, their families are not the same as when, as they as when they were caught and, and captured and taken in this brutal way. Many witness things that will be scarring them, and it will take a lot of time. And we know from hostages in the past, and we know from people who've been in such circumstances that the there are so many syndromes that, that follow, and Israel unfortunately has experience in this, yeah. and we will see that manifest. So Mountain. they will be then just that they will be taken from the hospital and then the families are waiting at the hospitals for them and at the base. And then they will be, um, then every step will be weighed after that about what will happen to them. But we still, 
you know, until the actual transfer takes place, everybody's with bated breath. Malcolm, is there an exact number that they're working on right now? Like the latest report you've heard w- would indicate that if all goes according to plan, so to speak, how many hostages are being released today? Uh, it's a good question because during the night, uh, what the numbers varied. Uh, some were saying 10 again. The number is supposed to be 13 in, in return for which Israel will release three to one. That means 39. Uh, and ultimately for the whole group, 150 of the 50 that are supposed to be released over the four days. And then 10 a day get by Hamas another day of ceasefire. Right. Uh, now, th- that doesn't mean Israel doesn't do anything during this time. As you know, the Hamas violated the deal immediately, shot rockets into Israel, and it was uh, interspersed some moments of the shooting, but right now it does seem to be quiet. Uh, Israel, uh, they accused of doing things in violation. They were just finishing and responding to attacks against them. And then the, the um, so the, if the ceasefire holds and the exchange can go ahead, uh, you will see 13 released today. The families of those to be released are being notified now or in the last hour of uh, of the status. And, of course, for the rest of the families, it's they're happy to see them get out. Yep. But it adds to their tension and, and concern. Oh, there's no question about that. Um why do you think, first of all, we should make it clear, Malcolm, and I think you'll say this unequivocally, if not for the strength of the Israeli military, the enemy would never have gotten to this point where they even expressed interest in releasing hostages, correct? It's only that military pressure that they've been under for the last couple of weeks that has even gotten us to this point. Absolutely, and I know a lot of people are critical of Israel and talking about you know, the original sin and, and the, the failures, that's something that will be dealt with. Some of the families today called for Netanyahu's uh, removal or resignation. But the, the Israeli campaign has been very successful. You don't get the full story or impact. Uh, and the numbers that you get are coming uh, for wounded or killed are coming from Hamas's figures. But the many, many more are in fact uh, terrorists then uh, are, are reported thousands of them are are members of Hamas and the you know it, it, the, the campaign will need to continue they've talked about two months more whatever they need to resume because they're the leadership is still in hiding they have not gotten to Khan Yunus where we know there are a lot of launchers there's a lot of um, equipment and if you leave from past history, we know that if you leave any of the cancer intact, it metastasizes and grows again. So they have to live up to the pledge not to allow anything to remain of the Hamas infrastructure. That doesn't mean they're going to kill all 30,000 members of Hamas. It means that they will get the leadership. They eliminated another leader uh, yesterday. And I know they have the others, many others in their sights. They still are exercising restraint when it comes to trying to avoid civilian casualties, but it's inevitable. And I'm sure that we will hear all sorts of terrible stories and numbers and stuff. Don't believe it. Wait to see what Israel says. We'll see what the real reports uh, say about the numbers that were uh, 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 in Gaza that were killed or injured and you know that the numbers in israel are reliable ones 
and God willing, you know, we were over 70, a number of soldiers that have been killed just in this in the action yeah. since they entered Gaza. Uh, all right, Al-Tiftachpev, of course, uh, not that I'm suggesting otherwise, but why do you think the enemy has uh, settled for three to one when in past cases it's been much, much more to one when it came to uh, exchanges? Because I think that the leverage was was less. I think Israel learned its lesson and would not have engaged in another Shalit deal. As you know, a very heavy price was paid for that deal because many of them were recidivists. And it was true of all of the previous releases that even go back to terrorism. Uh, So I think Israel was not willing to entertain anything um, more. They needed this. Hamas needs this for their own credibility. The outrage at Hamas, if you listen and have Arabic translators tell you what the people are really saying who are marching with those white flags going south, they're cursing Hamas. Yeah. Uh, not Israel. They, I'm not saying that they love Israel, but they certainly, the t- our anger is largely targeting them. So they needed this propaganda victory that they were able to get people out of jail, especially women and children, in exchange for women and children. Right. I think the price for the men may be, might be higher. Uh, understood. Um, how did, and what's the, I know it's for a longer conversation, but I'm trying to understand the role of Qatar here. You know, we always think of Iran as the sponsor of Hamas and other terrorist organizations, that they're behind all these terror organizations in the Middle East financially and in other ways. What is Qatar's role? Is it similar to that of Iran? Are they as radical there as them and they're willing to house not, and they're willing to not only, you know, so to speak, supervise Hamas's activities, but literally house the leadership of Hamas there. Yes. Yeah, so first of all, one note on, on Iran. If you saw Khamenei said this is a Palestinian battle and therefore indicated they were not going to get directly involved, or obviously all of the terrorist groups, Hamas, Hezbollah, Palestinians, Islam, Jihad, only can function because of the money they get from Iran which is hundreds of millions of dollars a year, and maybe perhaps more than a billion dollars a year uh, collectively, and certainly the Houthis as well, and the groups in Iraq and Syria, uh, the Iranian militias in those countries. So Iran, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Qatar is a Muslim Brotherhood country, and has engaged in radical politics. They have waves when they were, actually the first to open the door to Israel. Perez visited there. We went there uh, 25 years ago, and it was very open, and they uh, they engaged with the Israelis. They had a, an interest office, not a formal embassy or anything, but an interest office that was there for many years. It was business exchanges and other things taking place. Then they reverted to their uh, true nature, uh, it seems, and uh, the Muslim Brotherhood elements uh, and ideology became more evident. The leadership of Hamas is there. The leadership of uh, the other terrorists found safe haven in, in Qatar. In the meantime, Qatar and Israel had a very strange arrangement and dependency because they were providing money to keep the... Uh, authority alive in in Gaza, something Israel didn't want to be responsible for and and wouldn't take responsibility, but um, somebody had to provide some funding and it was agreed and the United States has played an intermediary role with them a lot. Uh, And so they play this duplicitous uh, game with us where on the one hand, they make themselves essentially get PR. The other hand, they're funding uh, the Hamas 
and and at the same time they're funding a lot of the activities we see on the campuses. The report that came out showed that they put thirteen billion dollars, perhaps, wow. of foreign funds. A large part of it coming from Qatar, and a direct correlation between Qatari money, foreign money, and increased anti-Semitism on our campuses. They are the primary funders now. Saudi Arabia has backed off. They're ready for a while from it. They used to be uh, pouring more money in. And obviously it comes with ideological strings, with conditions that universities unfortunately are meeting. And that is a separate conversation. But a lot of the tsarists we have on campuses, you can. this is a key element in that. that so Qatar now is the major uh, uh, intermediary. They are the beneficiary. They they benefit the the leaders of Hamas, and of course their top leadership is sitting in fancy hotels in Qatar while their people suffer. And that just not, and it, that does not only mean Hania. It means like like how many people? Like an entire cabinet of of, of their leadership, or or hundreds or thousands. I mean, how many are we talking about that are in safe refuge there? Well, there's certainly, well, there are a lot of people there, you know, that live in Qatar or, or who have come to, to, to Qatar, as they call it. But um, I would certainly say the, the key leadership, a handful, because military leaders are on the ground and they let them be sacrificed. And they are like his own grandson, know, his own grandson was killed it, by Israeli officials. And, this week. Yes. And their son, they're fighting and and these guys are luxuriating. Yeah. In uh, in a lap of luxury there, but the the the, um, the resentment of the people in Gaza should not be underestimated. You know that the the West Bank figures that were just released in the last week or so of polls that were done in the last couple of weeks show greater support for making peace with Israel amongst people in Gaza than in the West Bank. <laughs> By the way, Israel is operating still in the West Bank. They destroyed the house of the guy who did the shooting in Tel Aviv. They caught uh, a major a terrorist who has been responsible for a number of attacks just in the last 12 hours. Uh, there's no such thing as uh, as a, a right to extradition for Hania or anything like that, right? Like Israel couldn't officially either arrest him, um, you know, while he's outside the country for for either war crimes or for uh, you know terrorist activity or endorsing terrorist activity, and put in a special request that he be included in some of these exchanges, right? Oh, we'd like to include him in an exchange, all right. Uh, <laughs> but it's impossible. I mean, legally, it would, it would have no legs legally, right? Or, there's or- no legal issues when it comes to terrorists. They, right. they, you know, a murderer, you know, we, we, we exercise warrants against people all over the world, too. I think they are in the gun sites, and Israel has said that they're going to eliminate them. I think that uh, that concern weighs heavily on them. I'm sure you like like Nasrallah. Right. They never come out from their rat holes. They they hide all the time. They have to watch every if they hear buzzing noise. Believe me, they run and hide. The they have been pretty effectively avoiding the, the being brought to justice, but. It is not impossible. I, I'm not an international lawyer, so I think we have to get to people as somebody who knows the intricacies of law. 
But I would not say they are beyond the scope of this operation. Interesting. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web, and the Nachum Single Network, and of course, the beloved NSN app. Reminder, this coming Tuesday, Giving Tuesday kicks off our 40th anniversary year-end campaign, which we pray will be a success. If you like the programming here on a daily basis, it's very simple. Go to fjbunity.org, fjbunity.org, and keep us going. We have a proven track record. 40 years is a pretty long time. So give generously at fjbunity.org. All right, Malcolm, to this side of the world, because there are some people who started commenting to me how things have calmed down on this side of the world. And, of course, yesterday you see what happened at the New York City Public Library. Uh, You see what happened at the Thanksgiving Macy's uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade. You saw what happened in Brentwood, um, a Jewish home uh, where the residents were harassed and vandals uh, took care of what they had to do uh, in front of that home, etc., Etc. Etc. We don't see the response from public officials or from uh, law enforcement that we'd like. I know we have to be thankful to those who do respond and keep our public spaces and private uh, spaces safe. I get that, uh, but there is obviously growing concern. Uh, w- what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts when these um, uh, these rallies, protests, and demonstrations disrupt some of the uh, most iconic uh, American traditions, the most iconic American landmarks, and at the same time we were. Be, we would hope that law enforcement officials would be cracking down on these characters. Well, first of all, I don't think they win any friends or supporters when you disrupt the parade and it causes a lot of anger uh, when they block highways in the way that they do. Uh, they have a right under American law for free speech and for free assembly. I don't think that the law enforcement has been strict enough in demanding that they have permits for some of their things, which we uh, are required to get, and others are. I know that it, it, the police are under tremendous pressure, and when you have multiple events, um, even when they attack police cars and smash their windows and wrote free Gaza and free Palestine on police cars, there was a, 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 a muted response. Uh, I think that there has to be a much greater crackdown on violence. We see that, the, that often these... Um, Events, the people on the fringes or even in the middle have attacked institutions or vandalized places. There has to be a crackdown. I think law enforcement officials, by and large, have been outspoken, and city officials, um, certainly the governor, the mayor, others have spoken out. But we have to see a concomitant response and permission given or, or insistence that law enforcement at all levels acts. I don't think it's because people don't take it seriously. I think it's because there's become this this uh, permissive culture, yeah. which we saw in regard to other issues, yeah. especially and on campuses as well. We must demand that, that the campus uh, officials exercise the same thing with their uh, enforcement agencies because the police on, on the campuses are, are unique to each institution. There has to be the message that any time there's an anti-Semitic incident, they get those responsible. You kick them off the campus. You you publicize their names that they become uh, they don't get jobs and that the world knows who's siding with Hamas. Yeah, 100 uh, percent. You have one of the one of the big benefits, of course, of your position and your history with members of the United States Senate and House is that you're in touch with them on a regular basis. Do they get the urgency of what's happening with the rise in crime and the rise of crime specifically, uh, as I described, uh, where the targets are these landmarks, um, Jewish people, uh, major events, etc.? What do they have to say about it? Well, 
I've heard from many, and many are outraged by it because you saw what happened today in Goldman's uh, office. He's been outspoken. He's been uh, quite remarkable. Yep. Um, and his Brooklyn office was vandalized, yep. and uh, and um, there have been demonstrations and threats against others. The demonstrations outside of Schumer's house, outside of Hakeem Jeffries' houses, their home, private homes. That should not be allowed. There's no reason why they should threaten the homes, the families, uh, and if so, then keep them a mile away or half a mile away. But I think that there has to be, um, they have to be protected. The the anger that I've heard from members of Congress about this, they associate them then with the radical movements that they are, that these groups are um, neo-fascist, that they are not, they, they're groups that, tend towards violence. I saw an incident myself on the street where somebody tried to stop uh, a kid from removing the, the posters of the kidnaps, and all of a sudden, 10, peop- 10 younger people were there and started threatening the individual who, um, who tried to stop it. Uh, uh, thank God a policeman came and just separated the sides and moved them away. That happened quickly, but this is... Uh, you know, it's a tinderbox right now, and we everybody knows it. People see it, and you know. It, and once you invite violence to if it, to to um, people who engage in the violence, don't fear consequences. It just invites it to be copycatted and repeated and expanded. It's a tinderbox that says it all. You're so right. A couple of things from around the world. Uh, you got to explain to me how, how how do you explain the BBC's attitude toward news reporting regarding Israel? I mean, some of their interviews. I'm sure you saw the one I'm referring to this week. I, I don't think you'd see that type of questioning from Al Jazeera. What is it about the BBC, who now, by the way, have at least admitted have uh, have reported and have discovered that the you know the tunnels actually exist under the hospital in gaza but could you give us just your opinion after watching them for decades what it is about them that causes this it's it's inherent in the ideology and in the structure of of the bbc it has been for decades uh you know this is part of their colonial tradition or maybe guilt uh, but more than that, it's the ideological orientation of BBC and much of the other media. You have few, even here in the United States, the coverage of a lot of the, the media, uh, with the exception, you know, a place like Fox or whatever. If you listen to NPR, if you listen to the, their coverage, is exactly like BBC's. It's hostile. It's not balanced. And, you know, often they'll bring in an extreme a leftist uh, Israeli who ends up being as critical as the Arabs <laughs> right. uh, on the other side. Right. But, you know, the Brit- if you listen to the way they ask questions, they always assert something and they say, right. They would like with a question mark. Right. So the person has to say either, no, you're wrong or, or, and that's difficult when you're, you know, you're the interviewed guest, like right. that. Right. So you, but you've already established a framework by virtue of the question, not looking for a, a, a complete answer. Are there exceptions? Yes, there are some exceptions. But when you see how Douglas Murray hit them on the issue of proportionality, if you listen to those who really have been effective in responding 
to uh, to the to the interviews. And then every once in a while, they issue an apology. The apologies are meaningless because they don't they don't really take it seriously. They just buy off time. But sometimes it becomes so blatant that they couldn't even hide it themselves. So they said they were wrong. This they they still the New York Times still hasn't acknowledged that Israel didn't bomb the hotel. They still don't acknowledge many of the other misreporting that they've been engaged in, and their reports are just outrageous and often the reporters when you hear them being interviewed themselves on other programs you see the bias it's so blatant right. and and then they bring out witnesses like a person like Trita Parsi who worked for the National Iranian American Council now he's at Quincy and he's brought out as an objective observer this is a guy who 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 uh, was a front for the most pro Iranian uh, regime uh, organization and uh, and he he was clearly involved there if those are the people you're going to bring as objective observers or analysts then of course you're going to get distorted reports so american press is guilty of a lot of this as well. That's why we have JM and the AM and need to keep it. That's why we have some of the other uh, means of communication and have to expand them. We don't have enough uh, to to counter the lies and the distortions. If you, if you listen to some of their accounts about what went on in in uh, in in Gaza itself, and then you find out that the person interviewing is in fact somebody associated with Hamas, though they don't say it and they don't uh, acknowledge it. So it's it's very disappointing, but the press is a victim and and responsible for uh, also the woke culture and the the distortions and the uh, hostile attitude towards Israel that we see in so many uh, circles. Was the prime minister of Bahrain actually the first Arab leader in seven weeks to condemn what happened on October the 7th? It was the crown prince of, uh, of Bahrain, and he did it at the opening of the Arab conference. Uh, and uh, yes, he was the first one and the only one to speak out in condemnation. Actually, I think the UAE spoke out originally uh, and others. And of course, they've all recalled their ambassadors from Israel, but they haven't severed ties and they won't. I don't think Bahrain will do it. Others, they are under pressure, you know, from their own internal constituencies at times or 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 from other arab countries uh so removing ambassadors is an easy way of of saying well we we demonstrated our our resolve although you've seen statements from some saudis and others also condemnatory of uh of of uh hamas or about terrorism uh, but it was a very, I thought, a courageous move at that conference to do it. And notice that very little came out of the conference, which was expected to issue all sorts of uh, declarations or take serious uh, actions. They did not. And uh, finally, in this little segment of Around the World, what can you tell us about the president-elect of Argentina? So there are two president-elects. That One is now going to be the president that's ecuador because i've spoken a lot about south america and the warnings about how it has shifted and the, the elections that earlier this year there were three or four elections brought to the power of extreme leftist anti-israel people here we see an election in ecuador bringing uh, uh somebody 35 year old very pro-israel wants to move the embassy and in argentina an outsider who got elected, who studies Torah every day with a rabbi, who wears the yarmulke, says sees himself as uh, in some, you know, strange relationship with Judaism, um, 
a remarkable guy who, who, who ran on a platform of economic reform, also talks about moving the embassy. All, both of them talked about visiting Israel. He's going to visit Israel. It was one of his first moves, I think, even before he's installed. Um, it's, not a, it's not a temporary thing. It's a, it's a longstanding um, commitment on his part, which he takes very seriously. So we, we've seen some elections in Paraguay as well that um, uh, with positive outcomes, I think people are getting tired of the Regimes that have, have, you know, in every realm, not just in regard to Israel, but in economic realms, political realms, have brought them no, no nachas. So they they are looking to new ways, and hopefully this will be ignite a new trend. Though I think it's certainly we can't discount Iranian influence there is growing in South America. China is expanding rapidly. They are still investing there. They're still engaged in all sorts of terrorist training. Hezbollah's presence uh, throughout is still a very serious situation, but, but these are positive signs. Yeah, I was just going to say, just that the Hamon Am in Paraguay, Ecuador, and Argentina have gone in this direction is such a positive sign. Yeah, but it wasn't because of Israel. I mean, obviously, this is not a, a major issue on the agenda of, of uh, the countries. They were elected for other reasons, but but the fact that people are so outspoken, like Emilia in, in Argentina, it's not that people didn't know. So right. it didn't stop them from right. voting for him and supporting him. And what does this do to the Iran? I mean, you alluded to it a moment ago, but the uh, the Iranian influence in South America. I mean, when you have now leaders like this in top positions or getting ready for the, you know, to be in this top position, does it alter things at all in terms of what they're willing and what the people are willing to tolerate in terms of Iranian infiltration into South America? And I don't think that the people themselves make such a link, but I do think a we'll see more activity by Argent by Iran against some of these governments through their agents in Venezuela and the Bolivarian countries. But I think it is an important statement, and for the Amiya bombings and the holding to account and the Nisman's murder and all the things in Argentina that are still unresolved, that hopefully he will he will help. But it is a very important development, you know, Chile elected a very extremist government, hostile to us. It uh, has the largest Palestinian population outside of, of the Middle East in, in Chile. So this is, a, a, and Argentina is a powerful country. If he can turn the economy around, if he can, you know, move it in the right direction, it'll be a powerful influence in uh, in South America. And I hope that we maybe we can create a new front there that will benefit, uh, you know, others running for office in the same vein. And finally, Malcolm, not that we uh, normally go back to uh, stories we covered 30 minutes ago, but there are people tuning in later in this conversation and are no doubt curious about the latest regarding the potential hostage uh, uh, negotiations and deal. Uh, it's supposed to happen uh, within the hour. It's supposed to be uh, happening at uh, 4 p.m. Israel time, which is 45 minutes from now. I don't know if you can uh, actually research different things during the 30 minutes that we're speaking, but have you learned anything over the last half hour in terms of an update regarding the situation? And just in general, if you could tell our listeners what to expect 45 minutes from now. First of all, when we talk, I'm laser focused on you. I can't do anything else. Second, second, tell them to get up earlier if they got on late. Uh, and have to go to an earlier minion or, or get up earlier. But, uh, but, um, uh, Everybody should, I mean, I know everybody will be glued to, to media to find out. It's still on track for 4 o'clock, though. Don't be surprised if it runs later. As I said, the families, once the exchange takes place, 
they will be taken to from Egypt to through the Rafa crossing. Uh, they will be then uh, flown by helicopter or uh, if, if somebody needs to be hospitalized right away, that'll be done. But otherwise, they'll take it to a base that will be processed and then everybody will end up be hospitalized. Uh, the length of time depends upon the condition that they're in and the needs that they have. Uh, and again, it is not beyond Hamas to play games. They want to create tension. They want to terrorize people. That's why they do what they do. That's why they're called terrorists. So don't get impatient if uh, things run a little longer. But remember, they have a big stake in this. They need to show that they could release the, the, the people from the Israeli prisons. They need to keep this ceasefire and that if it's violated, Israel will move quickly. They still have the mo- the reserves uh, mobilized. Some have gone home for Shabbos and some, you know, they, they're allowing people uh, some respite. But uh, the activities, they have to be on alert. They have all of their presence still in Gaza and they can move immediately. So I think that that's what we should look for in the, in the next hour. Uh, the, I don't think you expect there'll be any statements or things forthcoming until that actually happens. As I said, Israel is talking to the families of those likely to be released. And uh, But but you, the Hamas can easily change the list only to increase the pain and suffering. You know, Malcolm, uh, I was joking earlier about the picture from 30 years ago this weekend where you and I were speaking on the air. I, I bet you that the that the uh, the theme of that conversation was Islamic fundamentalism. Don't don't you agree that it likely was a very big part of that conversation thirty years ago? Well, it's been a subject that we've discussed, and I've talked about the danger of Iran and of Islamic fundamentalism since the late nineteen eighties. And I know a lot of your listeners and a lot of people elsewhere said it was depressing and that they didn't want to know it. Now they say to me, "We should have listened." When I started talking about the rise of anti-Semitism here on the program, yeah. people who listened regularly will know and would have been alerted. This is not new. This is stuff whose seeds are, were sown long ago. And it's just that we didn't root it out. I'm talking about in America, let alone things that Israel could have done more. The the international community still is tolerant of it. I think that this is this is not the end game. This is the early stages of the threats to us and to to Western democracy, Western values. October seventh, as I've said repeatedly, is a watershed. And the question is not that the, the world has changed; it has. They may not recognize it. The question is: Have we changed? The 300,000 people in Washington say yes. The the outpouring of chesed and stockers say yes. But it has to be sustained. It can't diminish. This is a long term. And they count on our getting tired. They count on, on our you know getting frustrated. They want to see us turn against the government of Israel and want us to turn against each other. The achtus that we have is the key to our survival. No question about it. We uh, can't get into an, into an, uh, into an atmosphere of complacency. We've got to keep the atmosphere you just described going for as long as possible. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak, please, God, next week. And please, God, next week, may all the hostages be out. Amen. Thank you so much. Malcolm Honline is vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM in the AM.